Um, our scripture today, sorry, is going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. I want to tell you just a little bit about the life of Mother Teresa. She's um, someone whose name is known worldwide. Um, she was born, I believe, in the 1910s, uh, if I'm right in saying that. And then when she hit about 18 or 19 years of age, she moved to Calcutta, India. Um, and she went there not to help the poor, but she went there to actually work in a uh, school for girls, um, teaching in a school for um, British, I guess, or non-Indian uh, citizens, children. And so she's teaching at a school, uh, it was a kind of a prestigious school, and so she was a teacher there, and she did this for many, many years. Um, and then during her tenure there in, at the school in Calcutta, she started noticing one of the practices of the local people was that if somebody came to the end of their life and the family didn't have a way to support them or it just became a burden on the family, they would literally take that person and set them outside on the street curb and they would just leave them there to die. Um, if a baby was born with a cleft palate or was born with some sort of abnormality, they would just take those babies out and leave them out in back alleys. They would leave them out on the curbs. And so she just started picking these people up and carrying them back to her home and caring for them until they passed. Or in the case of the baby, she would raise them and created this orphanage there and had tremendous ministry um, through all that, through the compassion in her heart. And so today I want to turn to a very specific topic to talk about compassion for those with special needs. And we see that played out throughout the life of Mother Teresa. And where do you think she learned about compassion for people with special needs? Well, we see it all through Scripture. Let's take a look at this um, text today. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet. We'll be reading verses 1 through 5. This is uh, talking about King David. He's become the king of Israel. And uh, here he goes. This is one of his, uh, the things that he does here. 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. You may be seated. Y'all did a great job on those um, Hebrew terms there. Um, so let me give you just a little bit of background about this text, about what's going on. Um, David has become the king of Israel. He's expanded the borders of Israel to modern-day Lebanon and to modern-day Syria. So he has really grown the size of the nation of Israel, the scope of the real estate of that, um, of that land. Um, so he's really established him quite well as the king. Um, then he thinks to himself in verse 1, he says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, if you remember, Saul was King David's predecessor. He was the guy that was the king before David had become king. And Jonathan was Saul's son. Jonathan was set up to be the next king of Israel. But if you remember, um, David had been anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the next king of Israel. And as things move forward, that's the way it worked out that that Saul died, um, and that Jonathan died, and David would become the next king. 
Um, and so he's, seeing, he's asking here, you know what, is there anybody left from Saul's house uh, that I may show some kindness to them? Because if you remember from the scriptures, Jonathan and Saul, or Jonathan and David were great friends. They saw, uh, I'm sorry, Jonathan, no, they were, Jonathan, David, and John, Saul were not good friends. David and Jonathan, yeah, anyway, start over, right? Rewind, start again. So David and Jonathan were great friends, and uh, Jonathan had to remain loyal to David through all the scuffle that David had gone through with Jonathan's dad, Saul. And so um, David had made a promise to Jonathan, his friend, that he would watch out for, that he would give aid to Jonathan's family um, even after Jonathan maybe dies or whatever. And so uh, David wants to know, is there anybody left from Saul's household? Is there anybody that I can show this kindness to, that I can keep my promise to, uh, to Jonathan? Verse 2 says, so they summon this guy in. He's a servant uh, of the house of Saul. Um, his name was Ziba, verse 3. David inquired, is there not someone of the house of Saul alive that I may show the kindness of God to him? And so Ziba says to the king, well, there is still a son of Jonathan left. He is crippled in his feet. Verse 4, and the king said to him, well, where is he? And Ziba responded, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. So this guy, Ziba, just informs David that actually there is still a surviving heir to the throne of Saul. He's the, this is the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan, who is still alive, and his name is Mephibosheth. Now, this guy, Ziba, informs David of two very important details, two very important facts. The first of those is that Mephibosheth, this heir of the throne of Saul, is permanently disabled. It says there that he is crippled in his feet. You say, well, how did he get to be that way? Well, if we flip back in the scriptures, 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4, we learn there that, uh, that, this, that while Saul was off at war against the Philistines, that, um, that, uh, that Mephibosheth had a nurse, and that this nurse was taking care of him, and she gets word, 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, that when Mephibosheth was five years old, the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. Jezreel is where this battle had taken place, where the Philistines and the Israelites were at war with one another. And uh, the Philistines overtook the Israelites. And in the midst of that battle, Saul was killed. Remember, he was shot through with arrows. His son Jonathan and his other sons were all slain around him. And the armies of Israel decimated. So this nurse that's holding little Mephibosheth, the five-year-old Mephibosheth, is concerned that these Philistines are now going to go chasing down the heir of Saul, right? Uh, to try and wipe him out as well. And so it says that the Mephibosheth's nurse took the boy and fled. And she fled in her haste because she was scared, again, about the Philistines coming after her. And as she fled in her haste, um, he, the boy, fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, we don't know what the nature of his injury was. Did she drop him on his spine? Did he have some sort of a spinal cord injury? Well, we don't know. Did she drop him on his head? Did he have some sort of traumatic brain injury or something like that? Again, we don't know. He was five years old. What we do know is that whatever it was that happened to him, it became a permanent disability. It became an injury that would follow him the rest of his life. He was unable to walk. Back to chapter 9. The other fact that Ziba tells us is that Mephibosheth is in hiding. He's in hiding. Uh, she says that he's at, or Ziba says that he's at Lodabar, which in Hebrew literally means a place of no pasture. That is, that it's a place that is desolate, a barren place. And the reason that he's in this place is because, again, he's the only surviving heir of the throne of Saul. 
Well, David's the guy with the crown on his head right now, right? And so it might, David might perceive this as a threat that, hey, there's somebody who is alive today that could walk into my throne room and say, hey, that crown on your head actually belongs to me. And so Mephibosheth is thinking in order to preserve my life, uh, to extend my life here on this earth, it's probably good for me, for David, not to know where I am because David might want to come seek me out, wanna, might want to try and exterminate me so that there's no threat from Saul's bloodline. Well, David finds out where Mephibosheth is through the servant of Ziba, and Mephibosheth is summoned. And so he figures, you know, I guess this is it. It was nice while it lasted. And so he comes into David's throne room, and David says to him, verse 6, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, or grandson of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage to him. And David said, Mephibosheth, almost in a delightful tone, kind of caught Mephibosheth off guard. He was expecting David to say, kill that guy, right? He was expecting to hear off with his head, hang him from the highest branch. He was expecting for his life to come to an end. Instead, David greets him. David meets him with great delight, and he says, verse 7, um, do not fear, for I will show kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. He and I were great friends, and I made him this promise that I was going to look after his offspring, that I was going to look after his family, and you're his son. You're his family, and so I want to look after you. And he says, I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and furthermore, you shall eat of my, at my table always. Verse 8, and he paid homage, that is, he bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog, this is Mephibosheth talking, that you should show regard for a, for, for a dead dog such as I. Now that's a Hebrew way of saying thank you. I don't know if you pick that up or not. It's kind of a long, kind of a strange way of saying that, but that's what that is. And this is a wonderful thing that David does for Mephibosheth to take him from being an outlaw, to take him from being an outcast, to take him from being a place where he feels like he has to hide in order to preserve his life, and to put him back in the land that, he was, um, that belonged to his father Saul, to give him back that land, to make him, restore him again to being a respected member of Jewish society. This was a very noble thing for David to do. But folks, to, to David, that was not enough. Because David understood something about Mephibosheth's condition in life. Because what good is a whole bunch of land to this guy Mephibosheth if he can't go out there and farm the land? Remember, it says that he's crippled. He can't walk. And so he's thinking to himself, David's thinking to himself, what good is it for me to give this guy all this land? I mean, there's no tractors, right? There's no hay balers. There's no uh, belt lifts. There's none of this kind of mechanized equipment. I mean, everything has to be done by hand, and Mephibosheth can't do it. The land's just going to sit there. And Mephibosheth is going to sit there and wilt alongside this land. And so watch what David does. Not only does he show great nobility, but he also shows tremendous compassion. Watch his sensitivity here. Verse 9. Then the king called Ziba back in, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all, to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. Verse 10. And you, Ziba, and your sons <clears throat> and your servants will till the land for him and shall bring him the produce for, to him that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. <clears throat> now, Ziba had 15 sons, it says, and 20 servants, which is more than enough hands to go around to take care of tilling this land and raising the crops and doing the harvest and all that Mephibosheth would possibly need. Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the, the king commands his servant, so will your servant, me, Ziba, will do. 
So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of, of the king's own sons. Isn't that wonderful? But David didn't have to do this. On many other occasions, other kings would have, like I said, brought Mephibosheth in and then off with his head, and that would have been the end of things because they would have perceived that as a threat, but not David. David showed great nobility, and David showed great compassion. <clears throat> okay, well, that's our treatment of this text for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask the question we ask every week around here, the most important question, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, that's really great what David did. He's a man of tremendous compassion. We see that. But I mean, you know, what difference does this make to my life here in the 21st century? Um, really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. <clears throat> Going back to Mother Teresa, she once gave a definition for compassion. And here's what she had to say. She said, compassion means trying to understand and share the suffering of other people. Trying to understand and share the suffering of other people. It's a smile, she said, or showing a simple kindness. It's the small things. It's the small things. Isn't that great? It's the small things. The little acts of kindness that show that you care, that show that you understand what a difficult time someone else is going through. Mother Teresa said that's what compassion is. And compassion for people with special needs, friends, is a major issue with God because God is a God of compassion. God's heart, and we see this all through Scripture, is inextricably linked with the vulnerable. God's heart is inextricably linked with the weak and those that are exposed. God's heart is inextricably linked with the physically infirmed of our world. You cannot read the Bible and not get that point. Psalm chapter 82, God says to us, verse 3, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless, that is to the orphans. Maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. Argue for them in court. Release, verse, rescue, verse 4, the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And God says if we do this, that he will honor and he will reward and he will bless our lives. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. God put right in the laws of Moses, hey, this is how you're supposed to treat those that are vulnerable in society. He says, verse 19, when you reap the harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field or it falls to the ground, you should not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, that is the foreigner, and the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Furthermore, he says, verse 20, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, in other words, leave some of the harvest behind so that those who are vulnerable can come behind and be able to um, gather a crop as well. Verse 21, finally, he says, when you gather the grapes in your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. In other words, leave some of the harvest behind. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, those that are vulnerable. Now flip this around and see what God has to say about when you don't leave something behind for the vulnerable in society. God says, Exodus chapter 22 and verse 21, I'm not a happy camper. I think that's how this reads. You shall not wrong the sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Verse 23, but if you do mistreat them, if you do not give them regard, they will cry out to me, God says. And surely... I will hear their cry, the cry of the vulnerable. And verse 24, and my wrath will burn against you and I will kill you 
with the sword. Friends, I don't want God saying that about me. (laughs) I don't want God's anger and his wrath burning against me. What's the recipe for getting God's wrath to burn against you? It's taking advantage of those who are vulnerable. It's taking advantage of those who are needy. It's taking advantage of those who are weak. God says, when they cry out to me, I will hear their voice, and I will have my uh, day in court with you. Friends, I don't know how the Bible could be more clear. The weak, the needy, the vulnerable, the infirmed are the objects of God's special care and his special concern. Now, what does all this mean for you here in the 21st century? What does this mean for us as a church? Well, it means that we need to take compassion and caring for people with special needs very seriously. And I think we would all agree that that is a good thing, right? Amen? That that's a really good thing. And I think we would all agree as well that the number one need of anybody, first and foremost, is that they enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that the care of their soul is the number one need of every single human being who's ever born in this earth, that they realize that they have a sin problem, that Jesus came as the solution to that sin problem, and if they'll accept him, that he'll solve that problem for them, and they can go on to eternity in heaven. That's the greatest need that anybody has. So as a church family, we're dedicated to that need, and that's great. But where so many churches lapse, where so many churches stop, is that they're good at ministering to the spiritual needs of people, yet we're not so good at compassion. And so I asked myself, I'm like, why is that? Why are churches good at doing the spiritual needs of people, but maybe not so good at the compassion uh, quotient? Why is that? Well, um, I think part one simple reason, at least the reason that I can, can identify with, is that there's a concern in the church about the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel becoming a social justice gospel. About the message of Jesus Christ and the, that you have a sin problem, that he's the solution to that sin problem, and if you accept his solution, then you can go on to eternity with God in heaven. That that somehow could get usurped that somehow could get overtaken by this idea that the church exists purely to alleviate human suffering. And that's the gospel, the social gospel. And so that's a real concern, and there needs to be some balance there. It's a legitimate concern. Um, You know, the Great Commission is not that we would go into all the world and end poverty. It's not what Jesus said. The Great Commission is not that we would go into all the world and stamp out injustice. Because Jesus knew that as long as this world is here in its fallenness, there's always going to be injustice. You can stamp all you want, but you'll never stamp it out. The, The Great Commission is not that we would go into all the world and alleviate human suffering. Rather, Jesus said it's to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, the good news that you have a sin problem, that Jesus is the solution to that sin problem, and that if you accept his solution, you can go on to be with him in heaven. That's the primary mission of the church and the world, friends, is to take that good news out to a world that is on its way to a train wreck in eternity. Amen? Nevertheless, God's heart is moved by injustice. And God's heart is moved by human suffering. And God cares for the poor. We talked about that last week. God cares. His heart is for the vulnerable and the marginalized and the weak. 
We see this all through the pages of Scripture, and it's precisely this witness to the basic needs of people. It is precisely our compassion that compels and opens the doors of people's heart to hear the good news that you have a sin problem, that Jesus is the solution to that sin problem. And if you accept his solution, you can go on to eternity with him. Compassion is a powerful tool, friends. And so our approach to people needs to be a holistic approach where we take into, concern, into, into account both the spiritual needs as well as the physical needs of people. You know, one of the greatest needs in our community are families with special needs children. The national t- statistics, I was amazed to read about this, are that 80% of marriages where a special needs child enters into that marriage end up in divorce. 80%. Why is that? It's because the emotional toll that it's, take, it's taken on that, in that family. And so what you end up in lots of cases are single moms who are giving care to their families and trying to run households. Um, what you end up with is, I mean, again, those are national statistics. That's not me sharing this with you, me telling you what, what, what I see or witness. This is, this is, these, are, these are the statistics that are out there. Friends, I think that we can all agree that these children and these families matter to God. And that someone needs to reach out to them with the love of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus. Because if Jesus was here today, guess what he'd be doing? He'd be meeting those needs. Who did Jesus spend most of his time with? Disabled people. He did. I mean, read through the scriptures. You see it all over the place. Jesus' heart, he'd see somebody with needs. He'd see somebody that had some sort of disability and immediately... He went to them. Immediately, he tried to reach out to them and share some of that burden. You say, okay, Gordon, I get it, and I agree with you that that's who Jesus would be ministering to. But, I mean, what does this look like in reality? What does this look like for me um, living in the 21st century? Like, how, how can I be a part of Jesus' hands and feet, meeting the needs of families, meeting the needs of those who have disabilities with special needs? Can you put some handles on it? I'd love to. Thank you so much for asking. I appreciate y'all are a great audience today. Um, well, one of the ways that we can do this is that when we have families, even families in our church or families in your neighborhood, families that you know who have special needs children and they wind up in the hospital and they're in the hospital for multiple days, for you to go up to the hospital for four or five hours or say, hey, look, I'll take the afternoon shift. I'll be here. I'll keep track of things. You can go home. You can get a shower. I mean, when you've been, y'all have been there before, when you've been in the hospital for days and days on end, the opportunity to be able to go home and just get a shower and just be relieved and be able to take care of some errands back at the house and feel refreshed to be able to come back and take on that next round. Friends, little things. Remember what, she, remember what Mother Teresa said? She said, it's the little things that show compassion. Um, when, uh, when families with special needs are trying to get ready in the morning and they maybe need somebody to come in and help them get folks ready in the morning to be able to get out the door. There's a, a gentleman who's a teacher at my girl's school and he's in a wheelchair permanently. Broke his back playing football back when he was in high school. Uh, he's married and has children. Uh, but getting going in the morning is a really difficult thing. And so there are five men who have volunteered Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Each of them takes one day of the week, and they come over to his house at like 4.30 in the morning and get him up in the morning and get him bathed and get him dressed and just help the family shoulder that burden and get him, in, get him going in the morning and launch him off into his day. And he's a tremendous blessing to everybody in his life. But again, it's the small things. It's the little things. Lots of times we're saying, hey, God, how do you want, me, how do you want to use me? What does God at work look like? 
You know, does it look like people uh, have, getting saved? Does it look like big evangelistic meetings? Well, it might look like some of that stuff, but friends, most of the time, it's the little things. It's the little things. Um, it's coming to a family that, you know, mom and dad are having to split Sunday mornings because they, can't, because they don't want to bring their special needs child up here to the church. They're just not ready to participate and be a part of the whole big crowd full of people. And so going to the house and saying, hey, look, one Sunday a month, I'll sit at the house. I'll take care of things here at the house so the two of you can go to church together. Right? The little things that we tend to take for granted because we're not walking in those shoes. <clears throat> Friends, this is the kind of church we have to be. And so I want to challenge each of you here today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to become a Mother Teresa. Not to join a convent, not to go to Calcutta, but do what she did. She was in Calcutta, and she was going through her life, and things were hunky-dory and fine. And she started to look around, and she started to see human suffering. She, start, decided, she started to see human need all around her. And she said, you know what? God can use me in some little ways to meet those needs. So get out of ourselves and get engaged in ministry to the needs of other people. Friends, life is too short to waste it on piling up money. Life is too short to waste it piling up stuff. God wants for your life to make an eternal difference. And how do you do that? Well, I think Mother Teresa made it, or put it as simply as it can be said. She said, you transcend self and you serve others. In other words, you get beyond yourself. You stop focusing on yourself and rather think about, what can I do? How can God use my hands and my feet to serve others? Let me tell you, if you decide to give yourself away like this, the blessing, friends, will be yours. It won't just be those that you're serving, but it'll be yours as well. One of the things that really kind of gets me is when I see somebody who gives of themselves and... Um, help somebody else out, but the person that they're helping just doesn't appreciate it, just takes it for granted, right? And they just, oh, thank you, take, 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 that's all I'm about. Friends, when you help a special needs child, they appreciate every moment of your time. When you engage with and help a family with a special needs child, they appreciate every single thing that you do for them. Because they don't have people standing in line to watch their kids so they can go out and catch a movie or do what we would think of as typical couple things. They don't have people standing in line to watch their children so they can come up to church together on a Sunday morning. Even the smallest piece of human kindness that you extend to these families is profoundly appreciated. And there is no joy in the world like when you've helped shoulder the load for a family with a special needs child. There is no sense of accomplishment. There is nothing that warms your heart more than the smile of a child with special needs. Um, you will never get that kind of joy from stuff. What does stuff represent? It represents something you've got to protect. It represents something you've got to ensure. It represents something you've got to keep organized and you've got to take care of. And that's, so that's my challenge to you, is that stuff doesn't give you joy. But helping those with special needs, friends, 
helping the infirm, helping those that Jesus spent so much of his time with. Friends, that's where you'll find great joy and purpose and an eternal impact through your life. God will give you joy like nothing else in this world will give you when you engage with families and people like that. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that um, just for setting this message in front of us today, by increasing our awareness, God, of how you can use our simple hands and our simple talents in eternal ways. God, it just comes down to a choice that we have to make of saying, I want to give my life away. I want my life to matter for something more than just me. Lord, we, um, we ask that you would uh, just take the things which we've heard today, that you'd seal them in our heart, and that, Holy Spirit, you would call us to action. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.